Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Medical Update on Ovarian Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between many other cancer organizations, as well as ovarian cancer groups. Um, so I want to call out to the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition, the Ovarian Cancer Research Fund Alliance, and SHARE. So those are all additional resources for all of you to access as well. Um, and it really is because of your interest in this important topic and in terms of ovarian cancer and its treatment and updates and um, because of all of your interest and all of the collaboration in making this program possible, we have on the call today over 559 participants on the call today. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Nigeria, Taiwan, United Kingdom and Venezuela. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And I really want to thank all of you for being on this call today. And today's program is supported by AbbVie and a grant from Genentech and Pfizer. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine, Florida International University. Dr. Runowitz has probably spoken on many of our ovarian cancer programs from the inception of our doing these programs. And Dr. Runowitz is going to present an overview of ovarian cancer, including staging, therapy options for current and advanced ovarian cancer, understanding germline or heritable BRCA1 and 2 and somatic or acquired mutations, and clinical trial updates. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, colleague Dr. Runowitz. Thank you. Um, I'm honored to have been included in this program. Um, it is a very impressive roster of speakers and a very impressive number of participants. So as an overview, ovarian cancer is a surgically staged disease. Staging and initial surgical management should be performed by a gynecologic oncologist whenever possible. The reason for that is that outcomes of these procedures when performed by a gynecologic oncologist have been shown to be better than when the procedure is performed by other types of surgeons, including, say, for example, OBGYNs or general surgeons. Neoadjuvant therapy, or therapy that's given upfront prior to uh, surgery, um, has become more of an emerging uh, option for patients as first-line treatments. Uh, patients with likely ovarian, fallopian tube, or peritoneal carcinoma should be evaluated regarding the concept of neoadjuvant chemotherapy as first-line prior to surgery. 
An assessment is done through testing, for example, CAT scan or PET scanning to determine the likelihood of success of cytoreductive or debulking surgery. That's surgery to remove the disease to microscopic or very small residual tumor. This decision is based on the clinical status of the patient, could the patient tolerate surgery, examination of the patient, and whether or not, in the surgeon's opinion, the disease can be resected to a minimal residual disease. And as I said before, this decision is best made by a gynecologic oncologist prior to the initiation of chemotherapy. The, the stage, as I mentioned, is a surgical stage, which is determined at the time of surgery, whether the surgery is done initially or after chemotherapy. In advanced stage disease, um, there appears to be four molecular subtypes, and we have a section on pathology, so I won't go into this in any great deal of detail. High-grade serous epithelial ovarian cancer is the most common with the four subtypes. And ovarian, fallopian tube, and peritoneal carcinomas are really considered as a single clinical entity um, because they are histologically indistinguishable and their response to the treatments is very similar. Treatment usually involves combination chemotherapy, a taxane and platinum combination. Intraperineal therapy may be an option. It's usually offered to those with optimally debulked or cytoreduced ovarian cancer following surgery. Angiogenesis inhibitors also may be utilized as first-line therapy. Um, however, that in the United States has not become standard therapy, and we await more data. Maintenance therapy, that is treatment that continues beyond the initial surgery, or I'm sorry, beyond the initial chemotherapy, uh, may also be considered, and one of the agents that we do use for that is bevacizumab. In patients who recur or in those with advanced stage, there are other uh, treatment opportunities. I'm going to talk a little bit about the clinical trial updates, but I want to make the point that patients should avail themselves of the opportunities to enroll in a clinical trial. Oftentimes, a patient will receive standard chemotherapy for two or three recurrences, and then they are referred for a clinical trial. Ideally, moving the clinical trial up in the armamentarium um, makes available drugs that may not otherwise be available. So clinical trials are always something one needs to consider. One of the newer agents that's being used in oncology are the PARP inhibitors, the poly-ADP ribose polymerase inhibitors. And these are being actively evaluated in women with um, platinum-sensitive relapsed ovarian cancer in those cases where it's come back on into a remission, and then a PARP inhibitor is used to consolidate that remission. The um, traditional is that the patients have received a, um, a primary platinum-based treatment, and then a PARP inhibitor, um, niraparib, olaparib, rucarbarib, have all demonstrated an improvement in progression-free survival in the maintenance setting as compared with placebo. Uh, this has led to the FDA approval of these drugs in that setting. 
The data on comparison to bevacizumab or other VEGF inhibitors in the maintenance setting is ongoing. So we don't know which would be the best treatment. And so again, a clinical trial would be a reasonable option. With respect to hereditary cancer syndromes, the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, among other organizations, recommend genetic testing for ovarian cancer syndromes in all women with epithelial ovarian cancer. And this has been a change that happened in the last few years. It's important that your uh, provider take a detailed family history to rule out um, which specific syndromes may be running in the family, for example, the BRCA1 or BRCA2 or the Lynch syndrome, to mention a few. Approximately 13% of women with ovarian cancer have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. Uh, Germlines are inherited mutations. That is, you inherit it from your mother or your father. And those are distinguished from sporadic or acquired mutations, which can be found in the tumor. Some of these mutations may be what we call druggable and will direct the use of personalized precision therapies. I'll defer further discussion to this to Dr. Kerr and Hendrickson as they are covering precision medicine and pathology in their remarks. As I mentioned before, clinical trials are very, very important for all patients to learn about, and it's really pretty easy to go to cancer.gov um, and look under ovarian cancer. It's usually in a recurrent setting, and the clinical trials will just pop up, and with the assistance of a knowledgeable navigator, one can learn about the novel therapies that may be applicable. So I thought I would summarize as I end here um, some of the highlights of the 2017 national meetings. Uh, one of the exciting trials was kind of a um, Trojan-like treatment. It's an antibody drug conjugate which targets the folate receptor, bringing the drug into the cell. Um, this particular um, antibody drug combination can be with bevacizumab, carbo, doxyl, or some of the new immunotherapies, the PD-1 inhibitors, um, pembrolizumab, for example. Um, if the tumor has a folate receptor, then the drugs can get in through that folate receptor. The response rates have been encouraging, so I would say keep your eyes on that ball. Immunotherapy is probably the hottest topic in 2016, 17, and probably 2018. And as in other cancers, we are looking at it in ovarian cancers. The response rates have been a little bit low, but they've been in heavily pretreated patients. So I would say that we really need to see more data before we can assess their efficacy. Um, and then there are a variety of other drugs that are um, being investigated from stemness inhibitors to um, WE inhibitors to HDAC inhibitors. So again, this information is available from the cancer.gov website, and patients should avail themselves of that information. So I think that that probably brings us up to date and brings me over time. 
but at the beginning of the call, I was asked what's probably the most exciting um, in news in ovarian cancer, and I would say that it's hope that there are many active treatments. There's lots coming up in the pipeline, um, and I would just say stay tuned and keep abreast of the clinical trials. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was really outstanding and a wonderful way to, to start this program, set the stage in terms of hope and all the treatments that are available. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Andrea Warner Hendrickson. And Dr. Warner Hendrickson is Assistant Professor of Oncology and Pharmacology, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Dr. Warner Hendrickson is going to address the role of precision medicine in informing treatment decisions new treatment approaches and follow-up care, controlling side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and talking with your, with your treatment team about your quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Warner Hendrickson. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you all today. I'm very excited. And I would really like to echo Dr. Ronowitz's last words about hope. I think, you know, being in this field, it's really exciting for us as treating oncologists and researchers because there has been so much new information and so many changes that are finally happening and finally happening for ovarian cancer. It's been frustrating for all of us, um, you know, in terms of trying to improve therapies, and I think we're really at the cusp of where we're really just in oncology in general starting to look at things differently um, and so it is an exciting time, and I'm really also very hopeful that a lot of these therapies and new ideas can come into the clinical arena very soon, and some of these have already um, made it in there. And so before I talk about precision medicine, I also want to echo one other thing that Dr. Ronowitz talked about, is that even with all of these changes, the first step in terms of treatment of ovarian cancer is definitely meeting with a gynecologic oncologist because surgery still has and is, is probably one of the most important things in terms of your cancer care. And so when we're talking about precision medicine and these changes, they're all very exciting. But at this point, that initial surgery is, is still very important in meeting with a gynecologic oncologist and talking about options, whether it be upfront surgery, interval surgery, that sort of thing um, is really important. So what is precision medicine and how do we use this in ovarian cancer? So if we think about you know, kind of treatment in the past is often kind of what we call a one-size-fits-all. So at the beginning we do, you know, initially with everybody gets their upfront surgery and everybody is, is, is treated somewhat the same. And precision medicine is really this emerging approach where we look at disease treatment and prevention that includes the individual variability, so differences in their genes, the environment, and that sort of thing. And so we're really looking at um, tailoring your treatment based on you know, your genetic changes, your tumor's genetic changes, some of your other factors, um, you know, involving, you know, your other medications, comorbidities, and that sort of thing. And I think that has been a big change in oncology in general. So the emerging changes are really, rather than looking and focusing only on where the cancer comes from, we're starting to look more at what caused that cancer to grow, what causes that cancer to continue to stay alive and proliferate. And so precision medicine really involves looking at the genes of your tumor and really understanding how your tumor kind of ticks and seeing if there is a way that we can tailor treatments based on those genetic changes in your tumor. 
And one way that we can do that now, and that is very prominent in ovarian cancer, is what Dr. Ronowitz already has mentioned, is that is the role of PARP inhibitors. And so PARP inhibitors is this new class of drug. It's been out for a few years now, but, you know, FDA approvals are changing um, very rapidly. But really, um, the PARP inhibitors are a class of drugs that seem to work best in patients whose tumors have certain mutations in their DNA. And so with the help of your oncologist and your oncology team, you're able to get your tumor tested to really assess how well those PARP inhibitors may work for your tumor. It's still not perfect, um, but we definitely know that those patients who have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation in their tumor are more likely to respond to these types of mutations. Um, but there are many other mutations that your tumor may have that would make you uh, more responsive to that line of therapy. That being said, PARP inhibitors are FDA approved for anyone who still responds to that carbo um, or that platinum-based regimen at first recurrence. But you can have a discussion with your oncologist or your team about, you know, what is my expected kind of response because you're your response may depend somewhat on the genetic makeup of your tumor. And so that will help you decide if a maintenance therapy with a PARP inhibitor is something that you would be interested in, because with all drugs there are some you know, side effects, and so some people prefer doing maintenance therapies and some uh, women may not, and, and that allows you a little bit more information in terms of how beneficial will, be, will this be for me, and, and you can kind of incorporate that into your discussion. So I would say for ovarian cancer, you know, those PARP inhibitors have, have really been on the forefront and, um, in terms of precision medicine. But that being say, said, like Dr. Ronowitz also mentioned earlier, there are a lot of clinical trials available based on specific mutations your tumor may have. And in the past, you know, we um, have really focused that on, you know, third or fourth or fifth, you know, recurrence. But I think it's really important, like she mentioned, that now that we have more of these targeted agents available, talking to your team about getting your tumor tested earlier, enrolling in some of these clinical trials earlier in your course of um, therapy. And so, um, again, I think discussions with your oncology team about how you can get your tumor tested, what it entails, I think is a really important uh, conversation. Um, in terms of controlling side effects and symptoms regarding your ovarian cancer, um, you know, what I'd like to say is it's really important to let your team be aware of your side effects. Um, as an oncologist, as a treating oncologist, it's hard, for, I can't address symptoms if I'm not aware that they're there. And I know that a lot of women uh, put up a front of, it's fine, I, you know, I don't want to complain or, you know, that sort of thing. And I think there are so many tools now that we have to improve symptoms, but we aren't able to, um, you know, share those if we're unaware of some of these symptoms. So it's really important to talk to your physician or your care team about some of the side effects uh, that you're having and also overall, you know, your quality of life concerns. What are your goals? Do you want to continue working through chemotherapy and what does that mean? Um, you know, can we arrange the schedule around your work? And, and all those things, you know, your team wants to make sure that this is as good of a process as possible for you and there aren't, they aren't able to do that without really understanding what your goals are. 
And when we talk about cancer care, I think it's really important to also remember that you are a whole individual and you need you have many aspects of your life that need to be involved in this cancer care. And so we also need to help you by involving different members and different people with different skill sets onto your team. And so one area that I think is really important and that's really emerging is palliative care. And sometimes people think it's scary because oftentimes palliative care is associated with hospice, but it's absolutely not the same thing. So palliative care is really a group of physicians or a team to relieve suffering and improve quality of life for anybody with any serious illness. So it does not have to be cancer, um, but obviously in this uh, context we are talking about ovarian cancer. So a pa your palliative care team can include a physician, a nurse, a social worker. It often includes a chaplain or a psychologist, physical therapists, dietitians, or any others depending on your needs. And people often say, well, you know, I'm feeling fine now. I don't, um, you know, I don't need that. But I think getting a palliative care team involved soon and we uh, will refer patients at time of diagnosis just so that we can ensure that um, all of their quality of life issues are being addressed. And so, um, again, I really just stress the importance of getting them involved if you have access to a palliative care group. And, you know, pain management is a major part of palliative care, but they also help with symptoms such as nausea, if you have chemotherapy-induced nausea, appetite changes, you know, trouble sleeping, all these things um, that your oncologist can help you with, but sometimes, you know, it's nice to have additional input from, you know, professionals who, who do this as well. And they also are able to pro uh, provide um, patients and family members with emotional support, spiritual support, outreach to um, organizations in your community that may be able to help. And so it really just adds to your, your team, um, you know, to help you um, uh, kind of deal with, with a diagnosis. So um, I will stop there, but we'll be happy to answer questions at the end. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Juana Henderson, for your excellent and really wonderful presentation and for really, again, um, really highlighting all the things that can be done for people in terms of managing the side effects and, and working with their team and also the concept of hope again. That was, thank you. And, okay, and our next speaker is um, Dr. Sarah Kerr. Um, and Dr. Kerr is a pathologist and, uh, and she um, actually been very fortunate to have Dr. Kerr on these calls. She's, um, she's a consultant of um, divisions of anatomic pathology and laboratory genetics and genomics, Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Assistant Professor, Laboratory Medicine and Pathology, Director, Molecular Anatomic Pathology Laboratory, and Co-Director, Genomics Laboratory Mayo Clinic. And Dr. Kerr is going to address the role of the pathologist, importance of diagnostic testing and advanced ovarian cancer, and understanding the landscape for testing and advanced ovarian cancer treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me, Dr. Mesner. Uh, my job in the next few minutes is to explain what a pathologist does for your care. Uh, it's my impression that some people think a pathologist can often be a mysterious doctor working behind the scenes. 
uh, which is sometimes the case. So I, I want to make you aware that pathologists play an absolutely critical role in your cancer care team, and I'll, I'll illustrate uh, what exactly they do. So let me talk about what a pathologist does in general. Um, many of you may be more familiar with the pathologists that you see on TV that are involved in what's called forensic pathology or autopsy pathology, especially in criminal investigations. Um, autopsy is an important part of a pathologist's training, but few of us actually practice medicine in that setting on, that you see on popular crime shows. So on the contrary, most of us go to medical school just like your other doctors, but then choose to receive specialized residency and subspecialty training in clinical laboratory testing. And it's important to note that this is not research, but really clinical testing that occurs in the clinical laboratory associated with your doctor's office or hospital. This specialized training in clinical laboratory testing lasts a minimum of three years and can run as long as seven or more years. And so after this training, a pathologist typically oversees a variety of tests that are done in the clinical laboratory. And this can be anything from routine blood tests to examining small tissue biopsies and fluids to sectioning and examining the large amounts of tissue typically removed during an operation for ovarian cancer. And this is why your pathologist is so important to your cancer care. Studies have found that up to 80% of clinical decisions are based at least in part on laboratory test results, including pathology reports. So now I'll talk more specifically about what a pathologist does for ovarian cancer care. Uh, first, I'll, I'll address what goes into preparation of a pathology report. Ovarian cancer patients may initially have a small biopsy of tissue or fluid removed from the abdomen to be examined by a pathologist to confirm a diagnosis of cancer and to ensure that the disease suspected is likely to be arising from the ovary rather than another organ, such as the intestines. Alternatively, uh, an ovarian mass might re be removed in its entirety for diagnosis with or without other organs to determine the extent of spread of the cancer. A full staging procedure or tumor debulking is often done to remove as much of the cancer tissue as possible, and fluid or tissue specimens are then examined by a pathologist using a naked eye examination, or what's called a gross examination, to measure the size, weight, color, and other characteristics of the tissue. Some of the tissue is also examined under a microscope to more precisely classify the tumor. Final classification may depend also upon special studies, and additional tests might include special stains of the tissue that are interpreted under a microscope by the pathologist. Sometimes genetic testing of the tumor tissue is also done in a molecular laboratory, and this can be done for both diagnostic classification and to help with matching the patient with a therapy. After this thorough examination, a report is completed by the pathologist to include the gross examination that we talked about, results of tests, a microscopic description if necessary, and a final diagnosis as well as staging information and sometimes comments that may be helpful to explain any unusual features about the case. Reports often include a standardized checklist that summarizes your tumor 
and the extent of spread in a standardized format called a synoptic report. I, I recommend getting a copy of your pathology report to read yourself, as it is part of your medical record. And the pathology report at first might seem like it is written in a foreign language uh, due to the specialized terms that we use. Um, and so I think it can be helpful to go over your pathology report with your cancer care providers to make sure that you understand the report and how it affects your care. In some cases where the diagnosis is unusual or complex, you may even want to talk directly to the pathologist about your report. I always recommend talking first with the doctors who know you personally, but they can help you get in touch with the pathologist if needed. And I do occasionally talk to patients about complicated reports. There are also some really great online resources for patients to help understand pathology reports. A new one uh, that's out there that I recommend is a resource from the College of American Pathologists called Your Pathologist. And you can check out that website at yourpathologist.org. That's yourpathologist.org. And Dr. Mesner can also share this information with you after the conference. So uh, next, I'll just briefly talk about the different types of ovarian cancer. Um, a wide variety of tumors can grow in the ovaries. So figuring out the type of tumor is often important to determining the predicted behavior of the cancer and the treatment that is expected to work for a particular type of cancer. The amount of time I have today is too brief for description of each cancer type because there are, there are many, many types of cancer that occur in the ovaries. But the most common type of cancer in patients listening to this conference, as was previously mentioned, is high-grade serous carcinoma. Now, high-grade serous carcinoma um, in most cases is now thought to start as a very tiny tumor in the fallopian tube, but that tiny tumor can spread to the ovaries early or to the peritoneum or stay in the fallopian tube, and that disease um, typically acts as the same kind of cancer no matter where the primary, the biggest tumor mass is. And so high-grade serous carcinoma can occur in hereditary breast and ovarian cancer families associated with heritable BRCA mutations, which we'll hear about in a minute from our next speaker. But, I can, but they can also occur in non-familial forms in which BRCA and or other types of mutations occur in the tumor, but not in the normal cells in the patient's body. Other types of ovarian cancer are very different from high-grade serous carcinoma, and some of these include low-grade serous carcinoma, borderline tumors, mucinous carcinoma, endometrioid carcinoma, and clear cell carcinoma, just to name a few. Rare ovarian tumors include those uh, in the sex cord stromal category or germ cell tumor categories, and making the distinction between these different categories is important because these pathologic diagnoses are the basis for the personalized treatment recommendations made by your cancer team. And your cancer doctors will often interact with pathologists at multidisciplinary tumor boards to discuss your diagnosis and situation. Oncologists, surgeons, radiologists, and pathologists together review your case to put together a recommendation for your care. 
And then finally, uh, because I often get a lot of questions about this topic, I want to touch on the pathologist's role in second opinions for ovarian cancer care. So unfortunately, even with extensive training and certification, a pathologist's ability to classify a tumor under a microscope is not entirely perfect. In difficult cases, we show the tissue to other pathologist colleagues or even world experts to determine the most appropriate diagnosis for the tumor. So just like other cancer doctors may disagree about what the best treatment is for your cancer, pathologists can also sometimes disagree on a tumor diagnosis. This difference can have a big impact on what treatment is recommended. So I encourage you to talk with your cancer doctors about second opinions in pathology, as they often have a very good sense of when a second opinion on a diagnosis may be helpful in their treatment recommendations to you. A large part of my practice is looking at cases for second opinion that are sent to me by other pathologists or at the request of other oncologists. Your doctor can ask for your pathology material to be sent in the mail to another center for a second opinion when appropriate. A second review of the pathology is also often done as a routine part of a medical second opinion. So if you go to get a second opinion on your care from an oncologist or surgeon at another center, they may actually request that the slides from your tumor be sent to their laboratory for a second review by the pathologist that they work with at their center. And so with that, I hope I've given you a good explanation of the role of the pathologist and diagnostic testing in your cancer care. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Kerr. That was really outstanding and really um, very important for people to understand um, the, the concept of even getting the second opinion and the second opinion from a pathologist. Um, all of this may not be what everyone is aware of. So these are just the detail in terms of what a pathologist offers is so important. So. Um, please all remember that and keep that in your with your healthcare team. And also, we will be sending you all this information about uh, yourpathologist.org, that, that website, so you'll have access to that. When we send out the evaluation at the end of the program, you'll be getting any resources that were mentioned during the program, and this one will definitely be highlighted as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Sarah Ewing, and Ms. Ewing is a Certified Genetic Counselor, Department of Clinical Genomics, Mayo Clinic. Ms. Ewing is going to address the role of the genetic counselor and how BRCA testing may impact your care. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Sarah Ewing. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and thank you so much for having me today. I'm really honored to be here. So I will be discussing genetic counseling and genetic testing and how this can play a role in ovarian cancer care. So I think that before being referred to genetics for the first time, many people are often unfamiliar or unsure about what genetic counseling might be and what genetic testing might entail. So just to help with some of that, some background, genetic counseling is a process to evaluate and understand a family or patient's risks of an inherited medical condition. As a genetic counselor, we have specialized training in medical genetics and counseling, and we work in a variety of different areas of medicine and healthcare, including cancer. So thinking about ovarian cancer and the genetics of ovarian cancer, the majority of ovarian cancers do not have an inherited or genetic cause. 
most ovarian cancers are really thought to occur by chance or be sporadic. However, up to about 20% of invasive ovarian cancers do have a genetic cause. So this is when an ovarian cancer occurs because of what's known as an inherited gene mutation that's passed down through the generations within a family, causing an increased risk for certain types of cancers. It is really important to identify which patients and families do have a hereditary cause of their cancer because this can have a significant impact on not only the care of the ovarian cancer patient themselves, but their families as well. So as touched on by my colleagues already so far, some of the most common causes of hereditary ovarian cancer are the genes called BRCA1 and BRCA2, sometimes referred to as the BRCA genes. So I like to think of our genes almost as our body's instruction manual, if you will. So each gene within our body has a specific function or job that it's supposed to carry out within the body. We have two copies of every single gene, one inherited from our mother and the other copy inherited from our father. So the function or job of the BRCA genes is actually to help control cell growth and DNA repair, and these functions work to prevent cancers from developing. So when a person inherits a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2 from either parent, mom or dad, the gene does not work properly. And a mutation is almost like a spelling mistake or error within the gene. So women who inherit a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation from their mom or dad have a significantly elevated risk for ovarian cancer and breast cancer. And men who inherit a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation from either parent have an increased risk for male breast cancer and for prostate cancer. So typically, families with a BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation present will often include multiple relatives diagnosed with early onset or young breast cancer and ovarian cancer through several generations. There are other genes beyond just BRCA1 and BRCA2 or the BRCA genes that we also know cause a hereditary risk for ovarian and other types of cancers. Some examples include the Lynch syndrome genes, a gene called BRIP1, RAD51C, and RAD51D. Some of these genes are well-known and well-described, just like the BRCA genes, and others have been more recently discovered, and we are continuing to learn about them and the significance of them. We do also assume that there are probably ovarian cancer risk genes that have not been discovered yet. So some families may have a mutation in an unknown ovarian cancer gene. So a genetic counselor meets with a patient, takes a detailed family history, provides some education and background on genetics, and helps patients facilitate a decision about genetic testing and what might be right for them. The process of genetic testing we'll touch on next is, is performed by a blood draw, typically, and then a specialized genetics laboratory examines the genes associated with hereditary ovarian cancer to determine if a mutation is present. The report is then returned to your provider, usually a couple of weeks later, or your genetic counselor, who then communicates the results and appropriate next steps to you. So if somebody does genetic testing and tests positive for a gene mutation, what does this mean for them? What does this mean for their families? If a mutation is found in BRCA1 or 2 or another gene, this means that the person's cancer does have a genetic cause. Just as my colleagues have touched on so far, this can sometimes influence ovarian cancer treatment. 
the FDA has approved the class of chemotherapy known as PARP inhibitors, which a few of the presenters have talked about already, and those are available as an option for individuals with ovarian cancer and a germline or inherited BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation. Identifying a BRCA1 or 2 or other gene mutation can also indicate that an individual has an increased risk to develop other types of cancer, such as breast cancer. So this information can be used to help guide future management and screening for patients and their families, such as earlier and more frequent screening and the consideration of preventative surgeries. If a gene mutation is identified through genetic testing, this can be very helpful for the patient's family members in order to understand their risks for cancer and to make sure that they are being screened appropriately. So close relatives such as children, siblings, or parents of a person with a BRCA1 or 2 or other gene mutation have a 50% chance of also carrying that same gene mutation. More distant relatives may also be at risk as well. Both men and women are equally likely to carry and pass on a gene mutation, and those who do not carry an identified family mutation cannot pass that on to their children. It's important to know that having a gene mutation does cause a higher likelihood to develop cancer, but does not mean that a person will definitely develop cancer over their lifetime. Just to kind of wrap things up, ovarian cancer is definitely a, the genetics of ovarian cancer is definitely a vast subject and it is growing rapidly, so it's something we're continually learning about. The National Comprehensive Cancer Network does recommend that all women with a diagnosis of ovarian cancer are recommended to have genetic testing. I think that was mentioned by one of my colleagues as well already. Um, as a genetic counselor, we can help you decide whether or not genetic testing is right for you or for someone in your family. We can help coordinate genetic testing, interpret your results, and help make recommendations for patients and families. You can find a genetic counselor in your area by visiting the National Society of Genetic Counselors website, and I can provide that, Dr. Misner, for you to provide to the patients and their families who are attending today. And that's all I have. Thank you so much. And would you like to provide the website to everyone right sure, now? Yep. And then it's a and we also long, include it. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll take that. We'll all send it to you all after the program as well. So yep. not to worry. Essentially, if you, get if you just Google find a genetic counselor, a website through NSGC will pop up, and that's where you can type in your zip code, and it'll find you a genetic counselor within a certain radius. So find a genetic counselor, just Google that, and then it's mm -hmm. NSGC? Yep, you got it. Okay, and your zip code, and your area code. Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. Well, this is a great resource. Well, you know, because that is always an issue, and um, I want to thank you um, for doing an outstanding presentation. And really, um, we actually could have you on many of our programs. Probably should think of it because it is an issue that comes up a lot, and people don't realize often how invaluable a meeting with a genetic counselor is for you to put things in perspective. And so it's really very important and to learn more information as well. Um, and so thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Victoria Puzo. And Ms. Puzo is an oncology social worker. She's our online support group program coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Puzo is going to address a Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Puzo. 
Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Well, I'm going to try and um, keep my part a little bit brief because I want to make sure that we have plenty of time for questions and answers, which I'm um, sure that everybody has a lot of. Um, but as Dr. Mesner said, I'm a social worker here at Cancer Care, and I also um, help coordinate our online support group program. Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Um, some of our programs include counseling, um, which we provide in the New York, New Jersey area, which, and it's also provided over the phone um, nationally. We also provide support groups in our offices and over the phone and, um, and online, educational programs such as today's um, presentation, and we also provide assistance in navigating the healthcare system, some limited financial assistance, and um, all of our services are provided by licensed um, master's level oncology social workers. So um, some of the things that we are trained as oncology social workers to deal with is how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and their family members and friends and loved ones. Um, we're also trained to help cancer patients and their supports tackle some of the problems that accompany the disease, such as the financial demands, physical changes, social and psychological adjustment um, when it comes to navigating your care and all of that. Um, and I think that it just adjusting to um, finding new ways of coping with a diagnosis in all of the areas that I just mentioned is a very important part of um, the entire process of going through um, a, an illness such as ovarian cancer. Um, so as many of you know, cancer affects the whole person, um, their entire family and loved ones, and I think that asking for help as a patient, a caregiver, a loved one, um, either by joining a support group or contacting a social worker through cancer care or through your treatment center is a real strength and um, can really help in um, dealing with your current situation. Um, it's important to know that you don't have to deal with any of these things alone and, and getting some of these kind of supports that I've talked about um, can be a really helpful way of, of navigating um, all various parts of this um, medical system and the emotional aspect of, of your diagnosis. And um, just so everybody knows that this time, Cancer Care does offer an online support group specifically for people diagnosed with ovarian cancer. I know this um, particular group is very active and is um, comprised of um, many women going through this um, treatment and also a social worker. So that's somebody that can give some kind of insight and um, information about dealing with your illness. So if you're ever interested in getting that kind of support, I encourage all of you to visit um, www.cancercare.org, or you can call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673, which is answered by oncology social workers who can give you insight into any of the things that we talked about today, can talk to you about our support services, or just kind of have um, a listening ear if you need to vent about anything that you're going through. Um, so please take advantage of some of those support services, and I'll um, switch it back over to Carolyn so we can get some questions and answers in um, before the end of the presentation. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Suzo, my esteemed colleague, who we both work here at Cancer Care, and I have to say that um, the online support groups are become very, very um, popular for many people um, uh, because they are 
Um, basically, um, there is no time connected to them so that you can be anywhere in the world, any country, any part of the United States, and you can um, post something, and there's always somebody probably up around that time too, even though it's in different time zones, so that you can feel connected. So that's a wonderful thing that's available to everybody um, on this call. And um, and then all the other services on the telephone or, or even just emailing us for help, those are all here. So please take advantage of that. And now we have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, our... Um, uh, I'm actually going to ask Glenda to bring all of our speakers on board, and then we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And before the call ends, if we don't get to your question, I will let you know exactly how to get your questions answered going forward. Okay. So, Glenda. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from the line of Debbie Bowman. Your line is now open. Hello. I'm a, a low-grade ovarian cancer um, survivor. I guess I have a couple of years in anyway. I was wondering if there was any new insights on low-grade that are coming up at all. Oh, thank you. Excellent question. Dr. Ronowitz, do you want to address that to start with? Uh, yes, your question is very timely, actually. Uh, there have been a few studies now looking at hormone receptors in low grade and correlating that with response to therapies. So um, I think it would be reasonable for your um, treating oncologist to ask the pathologist to look at the estrogen and progesterone receptors on your tumor. And if they are significant, then an option for uh, treatment, if the disease recurs, could be a pill, a hormone therapy, uh, such as an aromatase inhibitor or something like progesterone megase. Um, or um, if there's a trial looking at uh, maintenance therapy and you're within the time frame, um, that might be something also to consider. Excellent. Wonderful question. Thank you. Um, uh, let's see. Um, there's a question now um, from one of our online participants, um, and um, I'm going to give this question to Dr. Warner Hendrickson. What are the options for maintenance therapy after one occurrence besides Vastin? Yes, so if I'm understanding this question correctly, the question focuses on the cancer has recurred once. Um, you've had some sort of treatment for that cancer. What options are there for maintenance therapy? And that's a great um, question. So we talked a little bit about that role of PARP inhibitors, and that's where these um, class of agents can fall. So if your cancer recurred kind of more than six months from the time when you completed your initial therapy. Um, you were likely retreated with carboplatin or a platinum agent in combination with another um, drug such as doxel or taxel again or gemcitabine. And after that's completed, if you had at least four cycles of that type of chemotherapy and it looked like your tumor at least shrunk, then you would have the option of initiating therapy with one of these PARP inhibitors. And so talking to your oncologist about some of the specifics of your tumor in terms of the genetics can give you a little bit more information of kind of what your expected response would be to that maintenance therapy. But even if that information is not available, it is now FDA approved for any patient 
who had that, who kind of had a, you know, a, a recurrence, was treated with a platinum agent, and there was some response. So that is an option, as well as that drug Avastin, um, which was also briefly discussed. And so that is also an agent that is available for maintenance therapy. And there's another question that's come in from one of our online participants. Um, Oh, there is actually one. Actually, let's take the telephone question first. So, um, actually, um, so Glenda, is there another telephone question? Am I reading that correctly? Yes, and we do have a question from the line of Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Thank you so much, Caroline. As usual, it's an excellent seminar. I want to thank all the doctors. I have a question for Dr. Hendrickson about permanent side effects from Taxol. I had 11 years ago, and I'd like to know what she has heard or anybody's heard about any studies on the alpha-lipoic acid, the vitamin B6, B12, and B5, as compared to the Neurontin, Cymbalta, and Lyrica that have a lot of side effects. And I have a second question. Has anybody heard of late co-laser therapy or the tense scrambler machine used for the peripheral neuropathy on the hands or the acupuncture for the hands? Thank you so much. Well, thank you um, for those for comments and for that question, Stephanie. And um, Dr. Warner Hendrickson, do you want to address those questions? Yeah, briefly? yeah, sure. Thanks. That is an excellent question. As you, um, as anyone who um, has experienced well, you know that the peripheral neuropathy is a big problem that we are all trying to struggle in terms of trying to figure out how we can better um, address that side effect that has kind of you know life-changing effects, and so. Um, you know, Neurontin is something that is available. Like you mentioned, there are side effects, and it works well for some people and unfortunately doesn't work well at all for others. The same can be said about the B6 and B12 supplements. It's, it seems to be effective in some patients and not others. Um, I think both of them are very reasonable to try, um, and discussing that with your, your oncology team or your palliative care team is really important. I think what is exciting and, and new is kind of um, what you had mentioned, that scrambler therapy, which is um, a little hard to explain, but essentially kind of really more of a, like the TENS unit, what it's trying to do is essentially reprogram, um, you know, your your nerves. And so that is not a pill. It's, a, it's an application that goes to the area of your neuropathy. It's done kind of you know, usually, you know, daily for 10 days or, or something along those lines. It does look promising in clinical trials. It is now offered in some places off clinical trials. Um, it is offered here at Mayo off clinical trials now, and that's another good way to go. And I've seen some really good results in patients. But like, you know, unfortunately, the other treatments, it seems to work really well in some patients um, and not so well in, in others. So we don't have a, you know, a catch-all um, treatment for that peripheral neuropathy, and I think the really important thing is as you're going through your treatment with the Taxol, um, discussing the symptoms with your oncologist so that it can be stopped um, and, you know, the regimens can be changed before the neuropathy becomes, you know, really debilitating. And uh, Dr. Runwood, please feel free to jump in as, as well on this. Yeah, no, I, I agree with everything that you've said. And um, there's another question from one of our online participants, um, and that question um, actually is um, 
about um, let's see, I'm just sure I got this question correctly. Um, Okay. Um, so this is a, a person who actually is going through um, ovarian cancer chemotherapy. Um, I am into fourth cycle of chemo with carbo and taxol first week of second chemo. I developed orthostatic tachycardia to 150S sinus, now controlled 120S with propanol. Questions are one. In your experience, how long maximum these orthostatic changes continued after completion of chemo? And two, do you make any changes in the treatment plan? So is was that I can repeat it, Dr. Aronowitz, if that's not clear, but um No, no, I think I, I have the gist of it. Okay. Um car when Taxol was initially introduced, one of the difficulties in um, getting it widely utilized besides the availability uh, was a concern for cardiac events. And we actually monitored many patients and picked up uh, many arrhythmias. And so um, I think while you're under therapy, if it's been picked up, um, stay on treatment. But once the uh, treatments have stopped, you might be able to uh, wean off the drug um, but you should have a cardiologist working with your oncologist. Excellent. Thank you. That's uh, outstanding. Okay, so I hope that's helpful um, to our caller, and please take this back to your treating healthcare team. Um, and then we have um, another question from one of our online participants. Um, so, um, and this would be for uh, Dr. Uh, Warner Hendrickson. Um, it seems that all the clinical trials are oriented towards patients with multiple occurrences versus patients currently in remission. Um, could you comment on that, um, uh, Dr. Warner Hendrickson? Yes, that is another great question. Um, it can be frustrating when you're looking into clinical trials that often many of these are for, you know, platinum-resistant recurrent diseases, and oftentimes when we're looking at, you know, experimental therapies, it, it kind of starts on the back end and slowly moves forward. There is a lot of interest now, and especially as immunotherapy is becoming, you know, kind of more on the forefront regarding treating the ovarian cancer during a period of, you know, disease-free where there isn't anything on a CT scan. And so there are trials and more are emerging kind of looking at this and looking at maybe this is the time when we should be using immunotherapy. There are some trials here in, at Mayo that kind of look at, um, you know, uh, folate receptor targeted therapy during remission. And so they are out there, but yes, they are um, fewer than um, those clinical trials where patients do have visible disease. Part of that is when we're starting to look at if a therapy can work or not. When we don't have tumor that's measurable on a CT scan, it's hard to really assess is it working, and it takes longer to kind of really assess was that helpful or not. And so oftentimes when new agents are being brought onto the arena, um, it initially is nice your, those trials are really, you know, can we see tumor shrinkage? Does it look like this is promising? And if so, then it kind of moves into that setting that you're talking about. So you're right. We don't have enough trials in that field, but I think it will be growing. And as we learn more about the immune system and how it, you know, connects with cancer, I think we're going to see more and more. Excellent. And the last and final question is for Ms. Ewing. 
Um, if I have had ovarian cancer, is there any genetic screening to determine whether my two daughters, ages 42 and 35, have a hereditary cancer risk? If you could address that question with you in a general way. Sure. Yep, no problem. So in genetics, we always think about who is the best or most informative person in the family to first undergo genetic testing to see if there is a genetic cause for the cancer in the family. And so the person who would be best to test to see if there is a genetic component for the ovarian cancer is actually the ovarian cancer patient themselves if they're available. So if the ovarian cancer patient is able to or interested in pursuing genetic testing and a gene mutation is identified, that's when there would be that 50-50% risk that we talked about for a child or sibling to have inherited that gene mutation from that parent. And if the patient with ovarian cancer does genetic testing and that testing is negative or normal, then we've at least ruled out these known genes as a possible genetic component. Thank you very much. And I actually want to thank all of our speakers. You have been, this is an outstanding team of presenters, and I know we could go on for at least another hour, so I just want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who've asked such excellent questions, and I know there are many more of you with other questions. So um, I, would, I said that I would, first of all, if you have continued questions, I would address that right away. So in terms of other questions you might have, for any medical questions that you may have, I do recommend that you certainly can contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 um, and actually or visit their website at www.cancer.gov and that website in the world um, ask the question um, and one of their information specialists will get information for you to get that question answered. Now we also have partnered with a, a number of other cancer organizations and ovarian cancer organizations so I would very much recommend that you of course would contact them as well because they have wonderful information as well to provide you booklets, fact sheets, all kinds of information to give you. So definitely take advantage of those organizations. And those would be the National Ovarian Cancer Coalition, Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, and SHARE. And now in addition, of course, I don't want to leave out your treating healthcare team. Um, clearly, um, I know many of you like to do research before you ask a physician a question, like your doctor's question, because you feel like you have more informed questions and maybe you can feel like you can understand better what they're saying if you've done a little research yourself. So definitely... Do um, actually, uh, but do not never leave out your treating healthcare team because they actually know all the details about your care. That's really very important. It has come up on the call as well that sometimes people do seek a second opinion, both second opinion of their treatment and second opinion read of their pathology report or second opinion just of, of their care. And that's another option that you have. And again, the National Cancer Institute, the 1-800-422-6237 can provide for you comprehensive centers in your community that you can access um, for your care if there's one available. Um, you also now, now I just want to move on, if indeed you would like to access any of the services that Cancer Care offers, whether it be the practical and financial assistance that we offer or a support group or to talk to one of our oncology social workers, you can contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673.
or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, we don't want anyone to leave today's program thinking that you are alone in coping with ovarian cancer. We want you to know that you are part of the community now of support that we offer and that there are lots of resources out there, so many actually out there um, for us to connect you with. So please, that's really very important. And And as we conclude, I want to mention a program that is coming up um, it actually is called Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. And it's a program that we're offering on Monday, February 26th. It's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's a program that may be of interest to many of you because people may, you're so focused on many other treatment side effects and may not realize that there could be some eye and vision changes that you may be experiencing, like watery eyes or dry eyes or, you know, loss of eyelashes, all those kinds of things, that actually there are things that can be done to help you cope with them. So do take advantage of that program as well. And you'll be getting information about that in the evaluation form. And lastly, we do encourage you to complete the evaluation form that is sent to you. Your feedback is really critically essential to us as we plan all of our future programs. So thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very happy new year and um, and hope to see you in, in future programs, and uh, you all take care and have a good day. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.